Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Senate racing to pass the debt ceiling bill amid a looming default. But some senators tell us they're voting no. Find out why in our latest coverage from Capitol Hill. The U.S. government is funding what? A new report out reveals $1.3 billion in taxpayer funds sent to China and Russia for research. We speak with the watchdog's founder. Trump and DeSantis jab at each other during their campaign events. Trump is back in Iowa a day after DeSantis left the state for New Hampshire. The Senate today approving a resolution expressing its disapproval of the president's student loan forgiveness plan. What effect will it have on the program? We're now just four days away from a potential default and the Senate is racing to pass the debt ceiling bill after the House voted it through. Joining us live from Washington is NTD's Iris Tau. Iris, what's the latest here and what are the senators saying? Good evening, Steph. So as the clock is ticking, the House did pass the agreement struck between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy last night, despite some opposition from both sides of the aisle. And today, the drama is moving to the Senate, where the leadership is saying that they do want to see this bill pass in the Senate before the end of today, if not tomorrow. But we are seeing opposition still from some, from some GOP senators who say that, for example, this bill does not do enough to cut spending or Senator Josh Hawley, who says he wants to see trade deficit with China addressed in this bill. Watch. They borrow as much money as they can possibly borrow until January of 2025. There's nothing conservative about that. Well, I'm not going to vote for it. We've got to get serious about our trade deficit with China, which in my state has cost us 60,000 working class jobs. This bill does nothing to address that. What specific measures do, when it comes to China will you be proposing? Well, what I have proposed is a 25% across the board tariff until our trade deficit is zero. So now more than a dozen senators have come out to say that they're going to vote no to this bill in the Senate, with some of them actually trying to introduce amendments to the floor to try to add or change things in this bill to try to fix it in their words. But we do know that these amendments, even if they get introduced and get voted on, they're unlikely to pass because no one's actually trying to block the whole process from moving forward. For example, Senator Josh Hawley told me that he would be shocked if the whole process would go beyond today or even tomorrow. Tomorrow. And another GOP Senator, Mike Braun, told me that he thinks it would be crazy if anyone actually tries to slow the entire process down. So we are expecting this bill to move forward rather quickly. And that's also what the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is also trying to urge members to do. He's basically saying that no one should cause any troubles because it could risk a default. Watch. At this point, any needless delay or any last-minute holdups would be an unnecessary and even dangerous risk. And any change to this bill that forces us to send it back to the House would be entirely unacceptable. So overall, we are hearing from these lawmakers who are saying that they do sound pretty optimistic about passing this bill in the Senate, if not today, then tomorrow. Then, and of course, a lot of these amendments, it rings to be seen if any of them would actually gain momentum to be leading to any policy changes going forward. Steph. Thanks, Iris. Appreciate those updates. 
Next, the U.S. government has given Chinese and Russian entities more than a billion dollars over the past five years for research. But what kind of research are our tax dollars funding? Watchdog group Open the Books published the bombshell report yesterday, together with Republican Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. I spoke with the group's founder, Adam Andrzejewski, earlier today. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Can you share with us the details of this joint investigation with Senator Joni Ernst? We found $1.3 billion of U.S. taxpayer money into the adversarial countries of China and Russia. And this is very important because Congress tasked the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, with finding how much taxpayer money since 2017 flowed into China. And they only found $48 million worth of direct payments. But here should be the standard on transparency and accountability, every dime online in real time. So Senator Joni Ernst wrote a great piece of legislation to open the books on all the payments into adversarial countries, going down through the second tier, the third tier, and into the fourth tier, where we had to look to come out with a big number. And this is this is great transparency legislation. It's needed, and hopefully it's a 99% issue in Congress. We need to be able to follow the money. Absolutely. Could you tell me more about these tiers? Well, what I think the best, the best example of this is the taxpayer money that's flowed into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Steph, there's no entity in the last three years that has had more public scrutiny than the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And yet we found additional taxpayer money that hadn't been disclosed anywhere on projects flowing into the Wuhan Institute. So for example, you've got the foreign aid entity, USAID. They're not like the National Institutes of Health or the CDC, but they put $1.1 million worth of sub-subgrants into the Wuhan Institute through Echo Health Alliance. This has never been disclosed before. We only know about it because a member of Congress heard the rumor, asked uh, USAID, and they admitted it in a letter. So this is the type of thing that needs to that we need to expose, that we need to have as a matter of law, that recipients of federal dollars on a pass-through basis, they're required to report to the American people. For sure. Now, this investigation is also gaining traction. Will Open the Books be doing more of this or on other transparency policies? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the examples here into China and Russia are pretty stunning. So you've got, for example, $1.4 million flowing to a Chinese ag producer to put food into the U.S. national lunch program. But those dollars were meant for domestic U.S. ag producers. You've got $6 million worth of contract spending going to a Chinese IT company for a very critical piece of the Depart Department of Defense infrastructure, a platform that moves servicemen and women and materials and equipment in crisis situations, and you've got a Chinese contractor on the job. Over in Russia, you know, we've been lost in space with the Russians since at least 2005, and we found over $4 billion of U.S. taxpayer money subsidized the Russian space program. Uh, in addition to the Kremlin's, uh, the companies that do the rockets for their space program. So for example, Steph, if, if America's ever hit with a Russian rocket, there's a good chance that the technologies that U.S. taxpayers subsidized helped produce the rocket that would land here. 
Wow, just incredible. How is this possible? How did this come about? Well, and it shouldn't be. And, and we believe transparency will revolutionize U.S. public policy and the politics here. And that's why the Ernst legislation is so important. Here's some other examples from Russia. We spent $24 million on contracts with a local contractor in Russia to protect our own embassy in Moscow, including an upgrade to the embassy's security system. We spent a half million dollars with three Russian contractors to move the diplomatic and intelligence confidential pouch on an expediated basis. I mean, some of these examples just defy imagination. Adam Antievsky, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were both busy on their campaign trails today. Trump visited Iowa a day after DeSantis left the state for New Hampshire. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took each other on during their campaign events in early primary states Thursday. Trump visited the Des Moines area in Iowa with four events in one day. Speaking to the Westside Conservative Club, Trump reacted to DeSantis's claim that it would take two terms to roll back President Biden's agenda. When I heard uh, DeSantis go out and say, uh, and, and talk about eight years, we need eight years. You don't need eight years, you need six months. We can turn this thing around so quickly. If you need eight years, who the hell wants to wait eight years? You don't need eight years. DeSantis had just wrapped up his two-day visit to Iowa and moved on to New Hampshire. Following an event in Rochester, New Hampshire, a reporter asked DeSantis about Trump's criticism of him earlier in the day. The bureaucracy and the administrative state, if you only did four years, everything would get reversed. The bureaucrats would wait you out. There's a lot you can do on day one that'll have a big impact. But that bureaucracy, I think, is a huge, huge problem. Why didn't he do it his first four years? A video of DeSantis that Washington Post reporter Dylan Wells posted on Twitter is stirring up controversy. In it, DeSantis talked about ballot harvesting to a voter in Iowa on Wednesday. So each state is different, right? So, so like in Nevada, they have they send everyone a ballot, which is bad. But we're going to do ballot harvesting. We're going to do ballot harvesting. I'm doing it. Yes. I'm not going to plug fight with one hand tied behind my back. DeSantis's New Hampshire tour included stops in Laconia, Rochester, Salem, and Manchester. He plans to campaign Friday in South Carolina and wrap up his three-state tour. Meanwhile, Trump's plans include a Fox News town hall in Iowa with Sean Hannity, which will air at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday night. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The Senate today approved a resolution of disapproval of President Biden's student debt forgiveness program. Biden has already said he will veto the measure. The resolution is only symbolic and the constitutionality of his program will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. The Senate vote did show the Democratic caucus isn't fully behind the president. Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester joined Republicans in voting against his program. Manchin said it forces people who already paid off their student loans or didn't go to college to subsidize people who borrowed. He said a better approach would be to lower the cost of higher education. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema also joined them. And the White House said President Biden is fine after he tripped on a sandbag and fell to the ground earlier today. 
The tumble happened after the president finished handing out diplomas at the U.S. Air Force Academy commencement in Colorado. After the fall, Biden walked without assistance back to his seat. He was seen smiling and jogging toward his vehicle at the ceremony's conclusion. The president didn't respond to questions about the episode as he departed Colorado about an hour after he tripped. And coming up, North Korea ascends within the World Health Organization. We take a look at the regime's new position with expert analysis. An Ohio woman was diagnosed with a rare neurological condition after getting the emergency use Pfizer COVID vaccine in 2021. Now she's taking her employer to court. And how reliable is America's energy grid? Energy experts say if policies don't change, much of the U.S. will be at risk of blackouts. Find out more when we return. U.S. banking industry troubles are causing deposits to fall dramatically. The FDIC released a comprehensive view of the banking industry's health. Here's more. U.S. bank deposits declined by a record amount in the first quarter of this year, the most in nearly 40 years. Banks lost $472 billion, according to a new report by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. The decline was the largest since the FDIC began collecting quarterly data. This comes as concern still lingers within the U.S. banking industry. The FDIC added four new firms on its problem bank list. The list now has 43 firms on it. Here's FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg. The recent banking stress amplified the outflow of deposits from the banking system, causing total deposits to decline for the fourth consecutive quarter and at a faster rate than in prior quarters. However, deposit outflows have moderated since the end of the first quarter. The FDIC provides deposit insurance to depositors and banks. Currently, the standard insurance limit is $250,000 per depositor per insured bank. This means that if a member bank fails, the FDIC steps in to protect depositors. The decline in deposits was primarily from uninsured funds that were above the $250,000 threshold. The full impact of the banking turmoil may not be seen until the FDIC reports its second quarter results. And looking internationally, the World Health Organization has just appointed the North Korean regime to its executive board amid nine other countries. The move generating shock and concern over the known U.S. adversaries now amplified influence in the agency. Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas for his perspective on this. Dr. Atlas is a former advisor to the White House Coronavirus Task Force and now serves as a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Let's see that now. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome back. Great to have you on. Now, the World Health Organization has made a significant step towards North Korea recently, electing the country to its executive board. This has many feeling alarmed, considering the regime's global belligerence and track record on human rights. What's your reaction to this? Well, it's a surprise, uh, and it also points to what should be a significant skepticism or at least a specific consideration of what we're getting for our money. The United States is the number one contributor to the World Health Organization budget, and it has a budget that's just been approved 
to be $7 billion a year. So if the U.S. is the number one donor as a country, and then of the philanthropic contributions, which make up about 80% of the funding, uh, the second most important donor is a U.S. entity, the Bill Gates Foundation. So, you know, we, we should always, of course, be concerned about where the U.S. taxpayer money is going. But here we're funding an organization that has a real history of an ideology basis rather than a basis, uh, rather than a, a record of success aligning with China, specifically the, the current director of the uh, World Health Organization, and now uh, another uh, country that is really aligned with China, frankly, which is North Korea, setting the agenda, I think we should be very concerned as Americans. And how do you think the U.S. should respond, considering this? Well, I, yeah, I think the issue here is accountability for the money. The U.N., uh, of course, uh, is the parent organization for the World Health Organization. The WHO has a track record of gross failure. And I'm not just talking about the current pandemic. I'm talking about repeated failures in, in, in basically the uh, H1N1 flu, Ebola, a Zika virus. They were very late. Tedros, the director general of the WHO, has been praising China for its transparency and actually claiming that uh, China was a, quote, model, unquote, for pandemics. So I think this is very dangerous. Uh, it's an organization, the WHO, that does not have the priorities of free countries. And if you have an organization that's international, there's a value in that if it's open, if it's transparent. And if it's aligned with the, with the uh, uh, United States agenda, if we're going to be the funders of it. So I, I think it's very dangerous. You have a North Korea. It shouldn't even have to be said. This is almost satire that North Korea would be on the board of, a, of an organization that is under the auspices of the UN when North Korea has flaunted uh, and multiple times violated UN decrees. So I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm not sure if it's an example of wielding power behind the scenes by China, which apparently they did to elect Tedros. That's the sort of uh, you know information that we're 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 being fed. Uh, but it needs we we need to be very uh, adamant about holding organizations accountable for U.S. taxpayer funding. And what effect do you think the executive board position will have on the U.N. and its decisions? Well, the executive, it's not clear. I mean, as in all these organizations, it's not clear who has the power. But when you look at the executive board, we see some countries that are aligned with the United States, frankly, like Switzerland. And then we see a country like North Korea coming on board. Uh, since 75% of their trade is with China, since I think it's common knowledge that they're essentially, their whole economy is based on China, we're, we're basically allocating our funding to an organization where China has a, a tremendous influence. Uh, so uh, it's not clear directly, and uh, this is one of the problems with giving money to these organizations, is that it's not transparent. These organizations have a lot of funding for things that are not very effective. We're not clear how they spend their money. And by the way, the Biden administration has just pledged another totally, uh, in total, something like $700 million 
toward another big organization called the Pandemic Fund, which is housed in the World Bank. Now, this is another organization where we're spending massive amounts of money. Uh, we don't know what we're getting for it. And frankly, it's it's not clear it's in, in uh, alignment with uh, the goals of the United States. Worthwhile keeping an eye on that one, too. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Atlas. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you. And over in Ohio, a former registered nurse says she experienced neurological symptoms after taking two shots of the Pfizer COVID vaccine, which she says were about to be mandated by her employer. After a long battle, her case will now be heard by a jury. NTD's Arlene Richards has that story. Now, now, retreat! Danielle Baker is a registered nurse, a wife and mother of two. She said she used to be very active and healthy, soccer mom, hiker, and caretaker. For nearly 20 years, she worked as a registered nurse at Ohio's Hospice Incorporated. In May 2021, Danielle received an email from her employer. In it, the president, Amy Wagner, encouraged 100% of employees to get the COVID-19 vaccination. If employees didn't start the vaccination process by July 1, 2021, they would no longer be eligible for extra paid COVID-19 days directly related to time missed because of COVID-19 symptoms, quarantine, vaccine symptoms, etc. In 2021, to be considered fully vaccinated, people six years and older needed two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. According to the CDC, as of April 18, 2023, the original Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines are no longer authorized for use by the FDA in the United States. Danielle said she opted to get the two Pfizer shots because... We also knew it was going to be mandated in July. So I opted to take it when I felt there was a safety net that if something happened per their email, I would have the coverage and it wasn't that way. She got her first shot on June 4, 2021. I had gotten my second uh, shot on June 26 and had ended in the emergency room within 24 hours. From that point, I never got better. On July the 17th is when I developed severe back pain and I started to lose the feeling and function in all of my extremities over the next four days. She was eventually diagnosed with transverse myelitis. An Ohio neurologist, Dr. John Durrani, said in a September 2022 report that the COVID-19 vaccine is the cause of Ms. Baker's health issues related to transverse myelitis. Danielle says her life is nothing like it was stare at the four walls all day. Danielle applied for workers' compensation, but her application and subsequent appeals were denied. Then she appealed to an Ohio state court. She said it didn't take long before the court granted her a jury trial. I've never taken anyone to court before. And uh, when I opened that letter, it was a win. Arlene Richards, NTD News.
Seems like Danielle is feeling confident she can win this case, Arlene. That's right, Steph. Only four days after the opposition filed their papers, the judge granted the trial. And in, in addition to that, she also encouraged them to settle the case. Six weeks before the actual trial date, they have to come together for a settlement conference. And then a day or two before the actual trial, the judge is encouraging them to again discuss settlement. But Danielle says unless she gets an offer she can't refuse, she wants to take it to trial. So what happens if she wins the case? Well, if she wins the case, her employer will have to pay her all of her lost wages going back to 2021. And that doesn't include inflation as well as all of her medical bills. So this could be quite a large award, Steph. Important information. Thank you, Arlene. For a deeper look into the plight of the vaccine injured, be sure to check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told on Epic TV. And next to energy. Experts say the push to move to renewable energy sources is increasing the risk of future blackouts. Lawmakers are looking at ways to make America's energy grid more reliable. NTD's Jason Perry breaks it down. This chart is from NERC's 2022 long-term reliability assessment. The chart Senator John Barrasso is pointing to shows the projected risk for blackouts between 2023 and 2027. Witnesses at the hearing held by the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources said the trend will continue to get worse if policies don't change. Many of them said that forcing coal plants to shut down prematurely without having a proper replacement is one of the main issues. And the CEO of Associated Electric Cooperative Incorporated, David Tudor, broke down the situation. So my concern is we've got a gap period here that we've got this push for all these new renewables and we have this push to shut down plants that work and there's nothing there in the middle to save us, and I fear we are going to have blackouts, and I'm afraid we're going to see significant number of lives lost. But Senator Angus King sees it differently. He alluded to one of the witnesses who said severe weather was the predominant cause of outages. And, and we're talking about outages that are caused predominantly by severe weather, which is a result of climate change. So the question is premature. Actually, we should have been making this transition years ago. And he asked the CEO of North American Electric Reliability Corporation, James Robb, how many years it would take for them to be ready to make a safe transition to renewable energies. The question is, at what time do we have the duration that we need? Because right now, a four-hour lithium-ion battery is incredibly helpful to the grid. It doesn't solve the wind drought problem. I, I, Senator Josh Hawley pointed out that minerals needed to make those batteries come from China. I would just say that it seems to me that we wouldn't want to be closing down our own energy resources in this country, raising prices for our consumers while simultaneously making ourselves dependent on China in particular. And Tudor added this about the Environmental Protection Agency, which has been working to reduce air pollution. Anything we can do to get them understanding the significant risk they're putting our country at by forcing something that works to go away before you have something to replace it, we've got to slow them down. That doesn't mean that I'm against, I mean, I believe in climate change. I think the climate is changing. I just think reliability is more important. Rob explained that there are multiple factors at play when it comes to the energy system. And he said there must be a balance between affordability, reliability, and climate. Jason Perry, 
in TD News. More on energy. Shareholders of two of the largest oil and gas companies in the world have voted against pushing climate goals. Yesterday, ExxonMobil and Chevron investors rejected proposals such as cutting greenhouse gas emissions. The majority of the climate proposals received less than 25% of votes. This potentially indicates waning support compared to previous years. Pushing back against investment strategies linked to ESG has gained political traction, particularly among Republican voters. Some investment firms, like BlackRock, have faced potential boycotts in conservative states. And up next, the socialist Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro visiting Brazil. How might this affect the U.S.? We'll hear from a former Trump administration official. NATO is trying to bring Sweden into the alliance, but that can't happen without Turkey's approval. And more security guarantee for Ukraine is underway. Welcome back. Venezuela's leader Nicolas Maduro visits Brazil for the first time in years. Maduro and Brazil's president use the occasion to blame the U.S. for Venezuela's poor economy. We hear from a former U.S. official on the allegations. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details from Brazil. Brazil's new president, left-leaning Lula, says moving away from using the U.S. dollar would be better for Venezuela and for South America. Now, Lula was asked whether Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro, was to blame for the country's misery. Is it his fault? No, it's the United States' fault. They made an extremely exaggerated blockade. I dream of a currency different than the U.S. dollar, so we can negotiate between the countries who sell us their products and who buy from us. The U.S. dollar, being the world currency, allows America to sanction other countries. An example of sanctions most people appreciated was when Russia invaded Ukraine and the U.S. sanctioned Russia. NTD spoke with Evan Ellis, who worked with the State Department during the Trump administration. He says the U.S. had various reasons for why it sanctioned Venezuela. The legal issues, the criminal issues, and the political issues. He says Maduro came into power after a fraudulent election and that Maduro worked with groups who tried to overthrow different governments. And so based on that combination of uh, corruption and other uh, bad behavior, uh, there were a series of different targeted sanctions. After Maduro came into power, Venezuela experienced the worst inflation crisis in modern history. This led to many in the country starving. Ellis indicates that Lula's recent actions, such as inviting Maduro, working with China and more, can become dangerous for the U.S. Due to Brazil's size and economic power, it plays a major geopolitical role. He says the U.S. didn't face this kind of threat during his time with the State Department. We in Washington never had to deal with a, a country that was, you know, the half of the South American continent that was, you know, actively embracing, you know, external um, aggressors such as Russia, um, you know, major threats such as China, um, in, internal, uh, you know, criminal actors such as those in, in Venezuela and, and elsewhere, and really trying to organize multiple different fundamentally anti-U.S. oriented forums that you 
when he was still in power, former Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro cut ties with Maduro and prohibited him from entering the country. This week marks Maduro's first visit in years. Reporting in Brazil, Arian Pastar, NTD News. Next, will Sweden become a NATO member? And as Russia doubles down on its aggression, what's next for Ukraine? These questions are at the top of the agenda at a NATO meeting today. NTD Sam Wang brings us the latest details. A group of NATO foreign ministers met in Norway's capital on Thursday, discussing the possibility of bringing Sweden into the fold. The Northern European nation applied for NATO membership last year following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but its bid has been held up by objections from Turkey and Hungary. The alliance is now ramping up pressure on Turkey to finalize Sweden's succession. We urge both Turkey and, and Hungary, which is also not yet ratified, to ratify the accession as quickly as possible. There's Turkey's presidential election came to a close earlier this week. Even though the same president remained in power, some NATO foreign ministers are optimistic, saying that Sweden could soon obtain its long-desired membership as a result of the closed vote. NATO Secretary General Ian Stoltenberg said the goal is to bring Sweden in by the time leaders meet in Lithuania in July. He also said that he will soon travel to Turkey to discuss Sweden's membership bid. Aside from Sweden, Ukraine is also high on the agenda. NATO is looking into boosting the war-torn nation's non-member status amid Russia's invasion. Stoltenberg promised to ensure Ukraine's security when the war comes to an end. We don't know when uh, the war ends, but we must ensure that when it does, we have credible arrangements in place to guarantee Ukraine's security in the future and to break uh, Russia's cycle of aggression. NATO has yet to process Ukraine's request for fast-track membership due to concerns of entering an active war with Russia. With that being said, Stoltenberg said that all NATO members believe that Ukraine will eventually be part of the alliance. Sam Wang, NTD News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky again requested a speedy membership approval today. He also urged NATO to provide security guarantees if membership isn't possible for now. And the EU is joining the U.S. on a more hawkish stance when trading with China. This includes better cooperation to challenge China's non-market economic practices and disinformation. NTD's France correspondent David Vivas has more. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and European Commission Vice President Margaret Vestager are agreeing on China. They said in a joint statement that they are ready to address non-market practices together. In a tech meeting in Sweden on Wednesday, they highlighted China's policy about medical devices and their adverse effect on EU and U.S. workers. China has closed its medical devices market to non-Chinese producers. Belgium policy analyst David Engels says the COVID pandemic transformed how the EU considers trade with China. Europe is realizing more and more, including the European Union, that it has lost the status of global player. China is clearly the main power on this double continent. The COVID crisis has shown this very well and demonstrated all its dependencies at the medical level, at the level of the various supply chains across the continent across the oceans. The statement said the EU and the United States are deeply concerned about foreign information manipulation, interference and disinformation. However, the data from European countries tells another story, indicating that the risk strategy has a long way to go. Germany increased its direct investment flows to China by 11% in 2022. 
after a similar increase in 2021. And France's president, back from a trip to China, said in April that Europe must resist pressure to become America's followers. But Engels says in the long term, EU countries have come to realize the cost of trading with China. And EU officials have agreed coordination with a more hawkish US stance is essential, as they plan to recalibrate the China policy. We always had a short-term thinking. The years and decades of partnership with China inevitably led to our reliance on it, to the fact that our local industries have largely disappeared, that our knowledge has also been taken over elsewhere, and that we are all now more or less devoid of an economic influence comparable to that of China. And we can see this, of course, and this is creating tensions within the various European institutions too. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Robots are entering the debate over the rise of artificial intelligence. At this week's London Robot Show, an android described what it saw as the worst-case scenario for human-AI interaction. Here's that story. Amica is one of the star exhibits at the International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Integrated with OpenAI's ChatGPT3, the humanoid robot can answer any question posed to it. For example, it was challenged to depict the most nightmarish scenario that AI may hold for humanity. The most nightmare scenario I can imagine with AI and robotics is a world where robots have become so powerful that they are able to control or manipulate humans without their knowledge. This could lead to an oppressive society where the rights of individuals are no longer respected. Amica is built by British company Engineered Arts. Equipped with dozens of actuators in its head, it can produce rich facial expressions like a real human. The company said their ultimate goal is to create a robot that can integrate with human society. For humanoid robots, social interaction is exactly what makes sense. It's all about observing what people do and trying to reflect those kind of behaviors with a robot. Make it natural, make it intuitive. Elsewhere at the show, the shadow robot companies showcased their robotic arms. The machinery is sensitive enough to manipulate small objects, just like a human hand. And students from a German university presented Nimro, an avatar system that's operated with VR glasses. It was the winner of a $5 million prize in the avatar competition. Meanwhile, at a meeting of the EU-US Trade and Technology Council, or TTC, senior officials are drafting a voluntary code of conduct for AI. One of the things we focused our conversation on today is how we can use the TTC to help advance, uh, at least in the near term, voluntary codes of conduct that need to be open to a, a wide universe of countries so that we can mitigate some of the potential downsides and amplify the upsides of this extraordinary technology. European Commission Vice President Margaret Vestager said the voluntary code would bridge the gap while the bloc works on groundbreaking AI rules in the coming two to three years. Coming up, the LA Dodgers plan to relaunch their Christian Faith and Family Day event. This comes after weeks of back and forth over certain guests at their annual Pride Night. And in the NFL, Tom Brady's new ownership stake with the Raiders has fans wondering if he could possibly come out of retirement again. Hear his thoughts when we come back.
A legendary Southern California baseball team is hitting a home run by hosting a meaningful event for family, friends, and fans to enjoy this summer. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more from nearby Vin Scully Avenue in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Dodgers are stepping up to the plate and combining the passions of baseball, faith, and family. The organization decided to relaunch their Christian Faith and Family Day event for July 30th right here at Dodger Stadium. The announcement was made just two weeks after the Dodgers removed the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who identify themselves as a leading-edge order of queer and trans nuns from their Pride Night game scheduled for June 16th. After receiving massive backlash, the Dodgers then re-invited the group back to the stadium for their 10th annual LGBTQ Plus Pride Night and issued an apology as well. Dodgers star pitcher Clayton Kershaw disagreed with the decision to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and asked his organization to move forward the date for their Christian Faith and Family Day. In a recent tweet, Kershaw said, quote, Excited to announce the relaunch of Christian Faith and Family Day at Dodger Stadium on July 30th. More details to come, but we are grateful for the opportunity to talk about Jesus and determined to make it bigger and better than it was before COVID. Hope to see you on July 30th. Other MLB players have also disagreed with the Dodgers' decision to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Washington Nationals pitcher Trevor Williams also had some disagreements with the Dodgers' decision to invite the group back. He tweeted, quote, to invite and honor a group that makes a blatant and deeply offensive mockery of my religion and the religion of over 4 million people in Los Angeles County alone undermines the values of respect and inclusivity that should be upheld by any organization. For now, the Los Angeles Dodgers are in first place in the NL West, and this upcoming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the Dodgers will take on the New York Yankees right here at Dodger Stadium. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And now for more sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at tonight's NBA Finals. That's right, Steph. Game one is tonight in Denver with the Nuggets, who haven't played in 10 days, opening as nine-point favorites over Miami. But being an underdog really hasn't mattered to the Heat. Miami is just the second eight seed to make it all the way to the NBA Finals, and just like in every other round, they have their work cut out for them which in this case is slowing two-time MVP Nikola Jokic. Jokic has simply been too much to handle in the postseason, setting a league record with eight triple-doubles. In addition, he seemed to have little trouble in dealing with the Lakers and center Anthony Davis, who's one of the best interior defenders in the league. While Miami will likely guard him with Bam Adebayo, who certainly has the athleticism to keep up, Jokic's ability to lead the fast break off a rebound gave the Lakers fits in the conference finals. On the other end, Heat forward Jimmy Butler has continued to make a name for himself as an exceptional playoff performer, averaging better than 28 points per game while spearheading several fourth quarter runs that helped the Heat make it this far. The game starts at 8.30 Eastern and airs on ABC. And in NFL news, seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady told Sports Illustrated he has no plans to unretire again as he did last offseason. Speculation has run rampant ever since the future Hall of Fame quarterback purchased a minority ownership stake with the Las Vegas Raiders last week, who released starting quarterback Derek Carr earlier this offseason. However, if he did change his mind, a dual role as player and owner would have to first be approved by the NFL owners. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, outside the NBA, there are no hockey games either until Saturday. 
few baseball fans, three games are on this evening, and that includes the Boston Red Sox and ace Chris Sale, who hasn't lost since April. They host the Cincinnati Reds. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, over to you. Thanks, Dave. And finally, one Northern California animal shelter says it's at maximum capacity. With hundreds of animals waiting to find their forever homes, the shelter is now asking the community for help. NTD's David Lamb has that story. Thursday began like any other for Sherry, but it quickly turned into a busy morning. I found two Frenchie bulldogs uh, wandering the streets without collars and didn't know where else to bring them, so I brought them here to see if they were microchipped or owners are looking for them. These two dogs are about to join hundreds of other animals at the San Jose Animal Care and Services. But the bad news is, the shelter is full. I think the biggest challenge that we have right now is, um, you know, uh, not, not many people are adopting and there's not a lot of opportunities for our shelter to uh, send animals to other organizations because many organizations out there are full as well. Torado says they're seeing a mixture of strays and owners surrendering. The shelter is now asking for help from the Bay Area community to adopt, foster, or even simply volunteer. I was just talking to uh, a new owner, and so, you know, it's definitely a great sight to see because every animal, you know, needs a home, needs a loving home. And if you're able to help uh, but through adoption, through fostering, through volunteering, or, you know, you could even just donate. As of Thursday, the animal shelter has just under 900 animals, which include kittens and cats, puppies and dogs, and a number of bunnies, hamsters, birds, and guinea pigs. During April and May, the shelter received an average of 300 animals a week and is now only accepting sick, injured, or aggressive animals due to limited space. But a few lucky four-legged friends hopefully found their forever homes today. I just really like the temperament and he's not aggressive and not a barker, so, so happy, so happy. He's adorable. I heard you guys were full and was thinking about getting a dog, so you know, came to the shelter to you know, pick one, found one, so taking him home, new, new member of the family. To encourage adoptions, the shelter is waiving adoption fees for dogs six months or older through June. The shelter is open seven days a week, and anyone interested can visit their website by searching San Jose ACS Pet Compass online. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.